Well now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever I stand in this pulpit, I see it as part of my calling to talk about God and Jesus and the gospel in a manner and in the kind of everyday language that anybody could understand. That's how the New Testament was written, you know, in the everyday street language of common everyday people. So I try to do that, but then we come to a a passage like the one today, which is anything but common and everyday. Someone asked me just this week, what are you preaching about this Sunday? And I said, the transfiguration. And he said, oh. (laughs) And I knew what he was thinking. You know, transfiguration is one of those five-syllable stained glass words that only gets trotted out every once in a while in Sunday school or on Jeopardy, maybe. Uh, You know, transfiguration. You do not hear that word often at our house anyway. But I'll let you in on something this morning. I love this story. I do. Maybe it's because it's shrouded in mystery. It's such an intensely personal moment between Jesus and God that so much of it happens in the middle of a cloud. What Peter and James and John saw on the mountain that day was so blindingly bright, they had to have been thrilled and confused and scared all at the same time. And maybe that's why I'm so drawn to this story. It's a strange scene, no doubt about that. And I I don't really know what to think about it, but it pulls me in. And I think maybe it has something to do with this. That even though I work pretty hard at keeping my life reasonably safe and manageable and under control, in the deep places of myself where I'm brave enough to venture now and then, I crave these moments when God is so close and the veil is, is pulled back and, and all the barriers are down. And this story, bizarre as it is, feels that way to me. So how about we lean in a little this morning to see what's happening around this story. The the account of Jesus on the mountain actually happens in Matthew and Mark as well as in Luke. And in all three of these accounts, before Jesus goes up the mountain, we, we see him pause and look far down ahead on the road that he is traveling. And he tells his friends what he sees down that road. And he says... Friends, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And furthermore, he says to them, anyone who wears my name is going to have to carry a cross, is going to have to lose life on the way to finding it. And so now having told us this, he he takes us with him up the mountain. It's an intimate group he brings, just three friends. And you know what? You can come too this morning. And it's as if he's saying to us, come away for a little while from the world. 
Let me take you to a place far above the suffering and pain and boredom and death. We can't stay there. We can't stay long. We're going to have to go down eventually and face all of that again. But for now, come away to a set-apart place with me. Jesus often sought out places of solitude where he could pray and commune with God. As imitators of Christ, you and I are called to do the same. But you don't have to flee to a mountain or to the desert to do that, although those can be places of deep healing and restoration. I'm headed to the desert at the end of this month. But the desert fathers and mothers, when speaking about solitude, didn't mean mere privacy or a protected space, although there is a need for that too. But the, de the desert mystics, as, as Henry Nouwen put it, saw solitude as a place of conversion, a place where the old self dies and the new self is born. And that can happen not only on a mountain or in the desert, but right in the middle of your very busy life. So here we are on the mountain with Jesus who is praying up there. And there really is no way to prepare us for what happens next. We're looking at him and, and maybe we're still puzzling and, and hurting over what he's just said about pain and death, his and ours. When suddenly, says Luke, there comes a change in Jesus' face. It's a change and becomes more beautiful than any face we could ever imagine. And his clothes flash white like lightning, brighter and brighter he becomes until we're all but blinded by him. And then we look again and we see that Jesus isn't alone. He's got company now. Moses stands on one side and old, fiery, bald-headed Elijah on the other. Why these two? Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets, and Jesus is standing between them like the beating heart of all scripture. Luke is going out of his way here to tell us the law and the prophets are testifying to Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection all according to God's sweeping purpose. It's this surreal and unrepeatable moment. And naturally, Peter, being Peter, just can't help himself. You know, overcome with emotion, he, he blurts out, Lord, this is awesome. Let's capture this thing. Let's, let's bottle it. Let's build three shelters that the three of you can live in, and we'll just stay up here. Let's, let's hang on to this, Jesus. And we really can't blame Peter for wanting to stay up there. After all, if... We have a faith that doesn't excuse us from the hard stuff, but asks, asks us to deal with it and to help the world deal with it. Then we're going to need all the vision and inspiration we can get. Some of us would be content never to leave that beautiful mountain. Only God won't let us stay there. God always keeps sending us back. Well, Luke tells us that while Peter is still blathering on, a cloud overshadows them. And as they enter the cloud, says Luke, they're filled with, with awe. And from the cloud, a voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
Luke says at this point the disciples are speechless. Well, I guess so. We began this morning with this big word, transfiguration, but did you know that behind that $5 fancy English word is a Greek word that's really pretty common? It's a long word, but a plain one, and it's a word you already know. The Greek word behind transfiguration is metamorphosis, change. What's more, Most often, when the New Testament uses that word, it's not about Jesus. It's about you, and it's about me. Paul used it when he said, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our text today isn't pointing only to the transfiguration of Jesus' face, but also to to the transformation that comes to ordinary lives like ours. Anybody in this room know what it feels like to be tired and bored with yourself? You look in the mirror and there's just so much that you would love to change. Most of us are up to our eyeballs in habits and relationships and behaviors we can never seem to change. For whatever reason, we can't seem to pull ourselves out of this rut we're in and steer a new course. The Apostle Paul summed it up beautifully for us when he said, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the wrong I want so much to avoid, I can't stop doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death, he said. But friends, at the heart of our faith is this outrageous claim that people can change. Behaviors can change, relationships, attitudes, habits can be transformed. The way we see God, the way we see ourselves can change. One of my favorite transformation stories is one that Sarah Miles tells from her own life. Sarah was raised as an atheist by parents who were vehemently opposed to Christianity. And one day at the age of 46, Sarah wanders into St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in the Mission District of San Francisco. She has no earthly reason to be there. She's never heard a gospel reading. She's never said the Lord's Prayer. She certainly isn't interested in becoming a Christian or as she put it, a religious nut. But somehow she finds herself sliding into the back pew as a spectator, and this is how she later described that experience. We sat down and stood up, sang and sat down, waited and listened and stood up and sang, and it it was pretty peaceful and sort of interesting. And then a woman announced, Jesus invites everyone to his table, And we started moving toward the table, which had some dishes on it and a pottery goblet. And then she said, we gathered around the table and there was more singing and standing and someone was putting a piece of fresh crumbly bread in my hands and saying, the body of Christ, and handing me a goblet of sweet wine saying, the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened, she said. Jesus happened to me. She said, I still can't explain it. 
It made no sense. It feels as though I had stepped off a curb or been knocked over. The disconnect, she said, between what I thought was happening, I was eating a piece of bread, what I heard someone else say was happening, the piece of bread was the body of Christ, which to me was patently untrue, and what I knew was happening, God named Christ or Jesus was real and in fact in my mouth, utterly short-circuited my ability to do anything but cry. She later wrote, that impossible word, Jesus, lodged in me like a crumb. She said, I said it over and over to myself as though repeating it would help me understand. I had no idea what it meant. I didn't know what to do with it. But it was more real, she said, than any thought of mine or any emotion. It was as real as the actual taste of the bread and wine. The word, she said, was indisputably in my body now as if I had swallowed a radioactive pellet that would outlive my own flesh. Friends, Christ himself has come to be alive in you. And if you listen, you can hear him whisper over your one and only life, get up. Get right on up out of, of despair or fear or grief or anger or addiction or any of the above or anything else that's made your life too small. Look at me, he says. I, I've gotten up out of death. And in doing that, I've opened a door for you that no one may shut. Come, follow me, he said, and never be the same again. That would be our transfiguration. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our hope. And so give us faith now to get up with you and to leave behind all sin, all shame, all littleness. Forgive our sins scattered around us like broken glass and lead us into the living that grows more beautiful, more powerful, more free. And we ask this in your name. Amen.